God bless your heart. Good to be here. I don't think we'll sing uh, tonight. Grab your hymn book, or not your hymn books, your Bibles, and turn with me a uh, couple different places. Uh, I think we'll start out. Let me let me kind of get this. I, I've got so many scriptures running through my mind. I'm not sure. Let's go to Luke 22. We'll start there. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5 also, but we'll start at Luke Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. I uh, want to mention this. First of all, we got some good friends. Haven't been friends but a few months, but we have come very close to Tom and Diane White that's on the front row up here with us, and he's from Cedar Gap uh, up here. Uh, I take it there's a place called Cedar Gap. I see a sign up there, but I've never seen anything other than the sign. Uh, along the way, but he says he's from there, but he retired and moved up our way, and and is so glad to have him and his family in our church, and good to have them here with us tonight, and all of our visitors, the visiting churches. Uh, when I was first saved, first got into church, and I didn't understand hardly anything <laughs> about it, there would be revival meetings such as this going on, or sometimes they were singing conventions going on, and it, I was just amazed how churches round about the town, the community, came out and supported one another. And to be honest about it, it really wasn't just Free Will Baptists supporting Free Will Baptists. It was all denominations. Everybody knew each other uh, in the area, and they were very supportive of each other along the way in prayer and, and uh, just doing what they can. They really weren't out to do each other, out to do the out best the other one or try to get somebody from another church or be the best church in town. They just wanted to serve God, and I think we've lost some of that over the years, and I have been blessed, Justin, to see the folks come out, and I would just encourage the Cornerstone Church to return the favor. When there's a revival meeting going on somewhere that's within shouting distance, uh, go out and support. We need one another. This is not just one work. This is God's work, and it is His kingdom, and we need all the help that we can get. Uh, we have another person from our church who's from the Mountain Grove area, and uh, she wanted me to kind of throw out her name. I don't know if anybody, her name is Margie Patton. She's married to Brother Wayne Patton. He's a Free Will Baptist minister who is now suffering from ALS. That's better known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, But he married her uh, down here in Mountain Grove, and her name was uh, Halliburton. Margie Halliburton. Does anybody know any Halliburtons around here? Are they worth talking about? <laughs> okay. Oh, <laughs> she is one? All right. Okay. So anyways, uh, if you know Margie, if you happen to know her, let me know so I can tell her I met somebody that remembers her down here, okay? Uh, I'm glad the sister remembered the message from last night because I felt very inadequate preaching it as I feel very inadequate preaching this tonight. Preached on sin last night, and the reason for the law of God was that sin might appear to be sin. According to Romans chapter 7, God gave His law, His commandments, His precepts. He pronounced judgments upon those who violated His law because He wanted to sin, and you and I have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. He wanted sin to appear to be sin. Satan does not want sin to appear to be sin. Or at least he doesn't want the dangers of sin to appear. We get these fancy commercials on TV of the Bushman and, 
everybody else and these different guys and Hollywood puts out movies and glorifies lifestyles of sin when actually that lifestyle is very destructive. I walked in Walmart years ago, just a few decades, decades ago during Halloween, I walked in Walmart and they had a they had uh, some type of scary character uh, up there. It was a straw man and, and, uh, and had blood coming down, had a hatchet buried here where the heart was. And, and I'm thinking, what is, what is supposed to be nice about this? I'll never forget a dad came to me one time. He said, uh, he said I'm losing my son. son was 17. I said, what makes you think he's, you're losing him? He said, the things that he desires to see. And I set the boy down and talked to him, and this is what he told me. He, he loved these slasher movies. I'm not talking about Frankenstein or the Wolfman, which might have been bad enough in their day. I'm talking about slasher movies. This is what he told me. He said, Brother Bob, he said, I just like scenes of people having their guts ripped out. We can shake our head, we can be all by it, but Hollywood has made billions of money with that kind of stuff. And then when something shocking happens in society after kids have watched thousands of video games and stuff of blood and guts, they wonder why somebody goes off and shoots somebody. Just doesn't appear to be sin. It does to us, doesn't it? He went a step further. He said not only that it would appear to be sin, but that it would be coming exceeding sinful. That you would see the full danger, the horror of what sin is. The wages of sin is death. And what that death is, it causes death here on this earth and a lot. Of, it literally sin saps the life out of people. I've gone to school. Kathy's got her class reunion Coming up here, 50 years class reunion this September. I know she's got a couple old boyfriends who've lost their hair, teeth have fallen out, they haven't maintained their health like I have. <laughs> and she wants to go down and compare me between them and see what she could have had. <laughs> well, it's... You might think I'm stretching. You should have seen some of them guys she dated. Good grief. <laughs> Come on, Bob. All right. There's a lot of my classmates who are dead too early in life because of drugs, alcohol, and immoral life that they enjoyed what is called in the Bible the pleasure of sin for a season. It's very enjoyable for a season. But when you have to start reaping what you sow in life, you understand that that stuff is very destructive. I think God Almighty is the only one who fully understands what the full repercussions of sin is. Again, sin is hated by God not just that it is against His holy character, but because of how destructive it is to his creation. Sin destroyed the relationship that God had with Adam and Eve. Literally destroyed it. Look here, I believe God enjoyed coming down in the cool of the day and visiting with Adam and Eve. 
in the innocency of their married life that they had, unashamed of their own nakedness because of the purity of the situation. But then sin got in, and for God it would never be the same. He pronounced that day a judgment upon them, but he also pronounced one on that old serpent representing Satan himself, how he would put enmity between the seed. You see, one would bruise the head, that's what Satan would do, but the seed would bruise his heel. Look here, we need to understand something, and I think we need a little spiritual uh, uh, imagination to kind of get a grip on it tonight. Sin is far worse, far deadlier. It will literally destroy the nation that you and I are living in today. I'm telling you, in my own mind, I hope I'm wrong, the United States of America will never be the same unless a revival breaks out in our land. And I will say this, revival right now is the most elusive, most elusive promise that God has made in his word. To my people which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray. God, and turn from their wicked ways. God said he would pour out a blessing upon this earth that you and I couldn't even begin to hold. And yet, revivals have become so, revivals have become so elusive, Brother Justin, that most churches have even quit having them. Just don't have them anymore. What's the use? I've had people tell me, I've, I've had preachers tell me this, well, my people won't come out anymore. They said they won't come. And so we have structured our church according to the will of the people instead of the will of Almighty God. And it's gotten us into trouble. We did not get to this place in our society of the church world overnight. We made some decisions down through the years. Maybe not intentional, maybe, maybe not really wanting to, but somehow or another we have set things up just the way we want it to be until we arrived at a point in our world that we see these churches in the book of Revelation and the first one up being the church at Ephesus and they got all the great works, they got all the things going, everything but got one thing wrong. One thing they messed up on and yet it just happened to be the main thing. What was it? They had lost their first love. They were no longer doing things because they loved the Christ. This is what we enjoy doing. This is what I want to do. And life in the hands of God is never about what we want. It is always about what He wills, what He desires. Jesus made a statement in John's Gospel, chapter 15. I want to just read to it real quick. He said in verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. Jesus considered the greatest act of love that could ever be experienced, that could ever be shown to somebody is if you was willing to lay down your life for your friends. And then Jesus called his disciples for the first time friends. He says, I don't want to be a master. He said, the slaves... Don't understand their master. They're separated from the master. They get their orders from the master. They go out and work for their master, but they have no relationship with the master, and that's not what Jesus wanted. He wanted what was lost back there in the Garden of Eden, that fellowship, that sweetness bond of being one. So 
the wages of sin being death. God looked upon the world and there was one thing. He would have to send his only begotten son into the world because nobody could live a pure life. Nobody. You know, I've had people, I'm talking right now, I have people ask me all the time, how do you know those kids at camp got saved? They're too young to be saved. How do you know that? Well, we don't know. How do you know kids in Sunday school, how do you know kids in vacation Bible school got saved? They're too young. I don't know. Every kid I, every child of mine, we have four, were saved before they reached 10 years of old. I don't know who was the oldest one. We can't even figure out their names half the time, but <laughs> we don't know who they are. But they all, all got that. My, my son, Farron, who is a missionary up here in Rolla, Missouri with the Mosaic Church, he came to me in a, in a youth camp, and he was six years old, and after the service was over, he's crying. He's got a hold of my leg, and he's crying and falling. And I said, Farron, I said, what's the, what's the matter? He said, he said, I think God's called me to be a missionary. All right. God be with my son. Go, go somewhere else now. Have a little short break. He wouldn't let go. He just kept bawling and bawling and crying. I believe God's called me to be a missionary. How can God call a six-year-old boy to be a missionary? Well, before he turned 21, he was called to preach, I'll tell you that. And before he got into his mid-30s, early, I don't even know how long ago he went to, to Texas. But my son today is a missionary. I can tell you this how you know. You take them at their word, they will sin. Kids who get saved when they're young will sin. By the way, adults who get saved, I don't care if you got saved here tonight and you're 80 years old, if you live another five years, you will not be sin-free in your thoughts. But if they sin, and if they've been born again, there will be some brokenness. It will not be, I don't care. It will not be, there will be something in there that will convict them of their sin. Let me tell you what happened to Farron. He'd gotten saved, and this called a missionary, and we had a, we had a wood stove, and he was standing in front of the wood stove one night, and he couldn't have been much more than seven at the time. I don't know how old he was, but, but uh, he, we were trying to get him to go to bed, and so he, we sent him to bed, and here's what he did. He started to walk away from that wood stove, and he went like this, bowed his head. Then he, start, he took about two steps, and he stopped. I mean, Kathy's just watching him, and I said, Farron, what are you doing? Dad, I've got a bad word in my mind. I'm repentant. <laughs> well, praise God. God was doing something in his heart. So God sent his son to die. There was three things involved that you and I need to appreciate tonight and maybe we would be willing to give ourselves to if we fully understand what Christ did when he died. I can't preach this tonight. But here it is in Luke 22. Getting ready to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now the scriptures tell us before he got to Gethsemane that night to pray, his spirit became very heavy within him. He became very burdened. In fact, 
in one of the Gospels, could be in this one, I forget, in one of the Gospels, will tell us when he got to Gethsemane to the place of prayer, he literally fell to the ground. He was under a weight that you and I cannot begin to comprehend what was going on. I want to tell you something. A God had never died. A God had never died. And yet he came to die. A God had never known sin, never experienced it. But he's going to experience sin in his life. We need to think about that a little bit. The worst thing we can do is just, oh, Jesus, Jesus bore sin, Jesus did this. Look here, the song that the quartet sung, that third verse, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, what's it say? I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my sins gladly bearing. Oh, my God. How great you are. We just can't fathom what Jesus is experiencing right now. You've been heavy hearted. You know what a heavy heart feels like, don't you? You've been broken in your heart. You've, you've had heaviness in your heart. But I'm telling you, none of it begins to compare with what Jesus is going. He literally, if there's anybody who had the weight of the world upon his shoulders, Jesus did. And he's about to face the cross, but it's not at the cross where the battle will be fought. It's where most battles are fought and won. It'll be on his knees. And so he goes to Gethsemane. It tells us here in Luke, or in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 39, he came out and he went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives. His disciples also followed him. He had went there many times, but this night was something different. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that, ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if it be thy will, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Now, again, this is above my head. Maybe there's somebody with a great vocabulary who can expound words tonight that would begin to tell us how can you pray a prayer so hard with such, with such emotions, with such physical strength into it that at the point of prayer you literally have to have the Father God send an angel to strengthen you or you will not be able to carry any further on any further. There is no way for us to measure the intensity of the prayer that we're reading about. There appeared, verse 43, an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Verse 44, and be in agony. Agony did not start at Calvary. Agony did not start with the nails in his hands. Agony did not start with the whips on his back in Pilate's judgment hall. Agony started in the garden. That's where agony started. Because right now what he's being confronted with is something that's more important to Jesus than anything else in the world. And it's not just the salvation of your soul and mine. But it is pleasing the Father. That was the one thing Jesus would never violate. It was the highest of calling. It was the greatest, the greatest need of his life to be about his Father's business. Amen? 
That's what his desire was. Whatever pleased the Father, whatever the will of the Father is, that's what he wanted to do, and yet he finds within his flesh, within his emotions of his own soul, an agony going on, a turmoil of division. Surely there must be some other way to get out of this other than go to the cross of Calvary. Surely there's another way to fulfill the Father's will. It was never a question of whether or not he was going to do the Father's will. Never a question. He would always do the Father. The question was if there was another way. That's all it was. But oh, how he prayed that there was another way. Verse 44, being in agony. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose up from the prayer, he was coming to his disciples, and he found found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, let ye enter into temptation. And while he had spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of his twelve, went before him and drew near to Jesus and kissed him. And of course that would be the kiss of betrayal. So we have sweat and blood. Sweat and blood. Profuted. Coming out of Jesus. Go to Hebrews chapter 5. <clears throat> Zach, good, another good friend. <laughs> I, I'm about to preach a verse of scripture I don't understand. I don't know the depths of it. I've read commentaries. I've read one commentary after another. Some of the best commentaries, the best theologians in the land. And I've yet come to grips with some of the truths of this scripture that I'm about to read to you. The writer is comparing Christ's ministry after order of this man, Machesildek, in the Old Testament that Abraham knew and paid tithes to, and about how great and how much better a priesthood, how much greater a ministry that Jesus had than Machesildek. And he delves into something that, without this verse of scripture, we wouldn't even know anything about. Let's start at Hebrews chapter 5. Let's just read the whole thing, read a, start the first verse. Every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity? In other words, this is why these priests were so unfeeling, so uncaring, because they had their own sins, their own infirmity, and it was never about the people. It was always about themselves. And by reason thereof he ought as for the people, so he also himself offered for sins. And no man taketh this honor on himself, verse 4, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. Verse 5, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he, that he said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And he saith in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, that's the prayer, that's Gethsemane. The writer is now taking us to Gethsemane. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. Wait a minute, all of a sudden we've got three forms of liquid here. We've got blood, blood that is busted out because of sweat. Glands that have now popped at the intensity of the prayer that he's praying. 
We have blood and we have sweat. But now we have tears falling from the eyes of Jesus. By the way, they're not just simple little weeping tears, a few drops here or there. This was an outpouring of his soul. Listen to what the writer says. Who in the days of his flesh, verse 7, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying. What is strong crying? Somebody explain, somebody explain that to me right quick. What is strong crying? Somebody, anybody? Uncontrollable, that's a good term. Sobbing, I heard somebody say. Can you imagine the son of the living God, that sweet little babe that was wrapped in, a, in, in the swaddling clothes and laid in the manger, that little child who went about doing good into his ministry of 30 years and healing people and feeling people with compassion. He wept over Jerusalem because of the rejection of him. He had shed tears before. The shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. But this is more than Jesus wept. This is strong crying and tears. Does anybody know, and I'm not trying to trip anybody up, I don't know, how long Jesus prayed in Gethsemane that night? Anybody know? How long did he pray? How long did you pray today? I'll just say this, I pray today. And I didn't check the time, but I can tell you what, it was less than 15 minutes what I prayed today. I prayed a pretty intense prayer. I had, to, I, I had to get me a box of Kleenex. I had to blow my nose a couple of times in my prayer today. I was praying for this church and for the revival meeting. But I mean just about, look here, this, I know he says, could you not watch with me but one hour? But that was not on all three prayers. That was the first time he come through. There's something in me that says Jesus prayed just about all night. Now what would it be like for your physical body to be under the weight of sin? Be about to be poured upon you. An, an ugliness that you're about to endure that is beyond your, your comprehension. Uh, something that's so dreadful that has caused a heaviness. Something that has brought you to your knees where you literally go to Gethsemane and you fall to the ground. And then you start to pray and the, the intensity of the prayer grows. It builds up and it builds up until now your blood vessels have popped. And now the sweat glands have popped and there's blood coming out. And you've been sobbing and weeping. No wonder the angel had to come and strengthen him. That type of praying will drain you physically more than a day in the hayfield. It'll take something out because everything about it is involved. Physical, soul, and spirit is all involved in this. Jesus, it says here, offered up prayers. That's, a, that's, a, that's several prayers. He offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. I don't mind, look here. My phone number is 636-543-545394. It's in the ballpark. Somebody call me the moment you come up with a good explanation as to what it meant Jesus feared. What did it mean? Jesus feared. What does that mean? Just 
just sit down and mull it over tonight when you go home and when you're thinking about the blood that cleanses for you from all your unrighteousness, about the blood that, that, that was shed at Calvary by the Lamb of God. Stop and think about what he's going through right now for you in his trembling and his emotions and his spiritual life and the fear that is running through. He's not afraid of pain. He knows what pain is. He's not afraid of somebody making fun of him. They, by the way, they will spit on him and mock him, won't they? But he's not afraid of that. The fear is, the fear is to this degree that I understand it, that taking sin upon him who knew no sin. See, we don't have, a, we, we, we just can't handle that thought, how much it, he despised it. That he who knew no sin became sin. So that you and I could be free from sin. He wasn't a sinner. He became sin when the Father stepped out of heaven. Now here's what would happen that day at Calvary. That day at Calvary, there's, there's all, he's already been beaten. There's already been blood been shed. He's already got the crown of thorns upon his head. The spit is upon his face. The beard has now been plucked out from his face. His visage, Isaiah said, was marred beyond that of any man, unrecognizable to whom he might even be. And then darkness sets in. Three hours of darkness will set in. What is about to happen is unfit for human eyes to see. The Old Testament gives us some insight into this. Isaiah 53 gives us some insight into this. <clears throat> Psalms 22 gives us some insight to what's going on and all the agony. This will be at the point during this hour that the Jesus will cry out this strange, strange word, wording of Eli, Eli. You know the wording. And it's the interpretation being, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Has the Father God ever forsaken the Son on earth? No. Never. But what he did, he laid on him the iniquities of us all. Now, I, I can't describe this, Justin. I don't know how to put this. I know in the Old Testament they had this goat that they would... They would crucified for the sins of the people. He'd, he'd have his, his life taken snuffed out. He'd have his blood shed. And then they would take the sins of the people recognized as it were. They'd lay it on the scapegoat on his head and send him out to where nobody was to ever see that goat again. Now the father steps down from heaven and lays on his son the iniquity of us all. And that's when he goes back. That's when Jesus is left with only sin. The Father depart. My God, my, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, if you want to argue the point, I'm not, I'm not an arguer. That's what I see in the scriptures. This is what Jesus is praying about. He's never. There was a separation. Somehow or another... Somehow or another, I, I can't explain this stuff. 
Somehow or another, one day there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three in heaven. There, there they are. They've been this. There is no eternity with them. They never had a, had a beginning. They won't have an ending. And there they are. And one day, one day the Spirit comes upon Mary, and, the, and Jesus is conceived of the Holy Ghost in her womb, and Jesus is no longer in heaven. It was just like that. Now he's on earth. But while he's on earth, the Father is smiling upon him, protecting him at two years of age from the king's threat of killing every young baby, giving him a loving mother and Joseph, the stepfather, protecting him along the way, supplying his needs. Well, let me make a statement. I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Jesus is about to die. A God had never died. And so, therefore, Jesus is dying by faith. He's dying believing that the Father will raise him. Now, I, there's a verse of Scripture. Jesus uses the verse of Scripture. He says, you think I have not power to, 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 to lay my body down or raise it again? And yes, Jesus had that power. But that power was from the Father that had given him all of his power. The scriptures clearly tell us that it was the Father that raised him from the dead through the Spirit. Jesus would have to wait. Somebody. So here we are. Let me get back to the message. There's blood. There's sweat. And there's tears. Now in the blood is the greatest price that God has placed upon life, isn't it? Because in the blood is what is life. That's why you had to take blood and lay it on the altar. That's how he given it. And so in the blood that's being shed, right there, right there in Gethsemane and all the way to Calvary, in the blood that's being shed, a life is being lost because of sin. Your sin and mine. There's sweat. What is sweat? That's effort, human effort. Did Jesus have any place to lay his head while he was here on this earth in his ministry? Birds of air, they have nests, foxes have holes. The Son of God didn't even have a place to lay his head. Did Jesus put some effort? Look here, while these disciples forget Gethsemane about the other times that Jesus is praying, and it's the way, it's the way John, Judas knew where he was at that night because John 19 tells us that he often resorted thither to that garden and prayed. Jesus is praying all night while everybody else is sleeping. Jesus could cast out demons because he told the disciples, he said, this kind will not come out except it be by fasting and prayer. Forty days fasting and praying before he even enters into the ministry. Who would consider that today? Well, I tell you what, we could set some things on fire if we did. It's a little bit above my dedication to God. I'll just be honest with you. There is no way I could have done what Jesus did. And by the way, there's no way I would have even wanted to do what Jesus did. He did. He died for Tom White. He died for Scott over there. He died for Mike, yeah. That whole crew you got over there, plus a boyfriend. That, that, those, those are people Jesus died for. 
Oh, by the way, did Jesus die for Hitler? Yeah, he did. Did he die for Saddam Hussein? And I can name some American politicians that I think we'd be better off with, but I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> Charles Manson. How many of you remember Charles Manson? The mass murderer. Jesus took his sins. He took the sins of the world. Some of the most homosexuals. Pedophiles. Murderers. And he's got it all in that Calvary. And he put some effort into it. And by the way, the tears reflect his heart. He put his life, he put his body. This is why when we take communion, we remember the body that was broken, isn't it? He put his body, he put his heart. Every now and then somebody say, you know what, it's just a little bit, I, you know, it's just too tough to go to church. You don't have to be a Christian to go to church. Oh, yeah. Don't tell the psalmist that. He said, I was glad <laughs> when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Yeah, but that wasn't once a year. Well, it's a privilege to get to do what you and I do. It wouldn't hurt us to put some effort. You know what? Praying praying is an effort. It is an effort. I can tell you why it isn't done more often, because the body doesn't want to do it. The physical body doesn't, even the soul. It is in the spirit. I need to. I want to. But the physical, the physical body doesn't want to. What about witnessing to somebody over there that's lost and in sin and on their way to hell, and Christ has died for them? And their soul's going to fall off the cliff because somebody says, Boy, witnessing is just my, not my thing. It wouldn't hurt us to put some blood, some sweat, and some tears into our life for the one who put blood and sweat and tears into our salvation. Thank God for the martyrs of the church, the Christian church. Have you ever read any of Fox's books of Christian martyrs? Men who died at the stake, men who paid the cost. Every now and then I want to talk about what I've given up to be a Christian. Every now and then I want to talk about my sacrifices. And they don't even begin to compare. Not only with Jesus, but with some of the saints that have come before us, Brother Zach. We've, we've had some, let me tell you, these churches that are scattered between Popper Bluff and Springfield didn't just pop up. There were circuit riding preachers. There was old time preachers who wouldn't even get a paid a dime. Ben Scott, anybody remember Ben Scott? He tells a story. He went to preach a revival just up the road. I wish I won't name the church. He went there to preach a revival one night, broke as all can be, and said he, he they never even got paid a dime to get back with his car. And on the way home, he hit a possum. 
He'd been praying. He'd been complaining to God. He said, my Lord, he said, I've given everything I've got. I've surrendered. I've got needs. I ain't got gas in my car. Where is my needs to be met? You said, the righteous will never be forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. And he said, about that time, I hit a possum. He said, I guess that's the answer to my prayer. Then he got out of the car and go up, went down the ditch, got the possum, threw it in the trunk of his car and went home figured that would be his afternoon meal. Said he went to the car and <laughs> he opened up the hood and that possum was grinning right back at him. <laughs> Wasn't even dead. Well, there's more to the story. I won't say it. Look here. I'll have to be honest with you. Billy Graham not long before he died, was asked what he considered his greatest successes. And Billy Graham said, I feel like a failure. He said, I've come short. Can I share a little story with you just real quick and we'll close? This is a true story, and I can't remember. I read it decades ago. It just come to me. It's a true story of a missionary. I believe it was in Korea but it could have been another oriental country. And this missionary had lived in town, and she would go out to the villages, and she would minister with the gospel. But most of the time, she was like, like a nurse trying to minister physically, and she had one woman who was about to do with child, and she knew it, and so she would check on her every day. And she got up one morning, and it had been very cold that night. It was during the winter, and it had been very, very cold, and Korea was known for its coldness. And she got in her Jeep, and she took off to go to that village where that woman was with child, and just as luck would have it, she got to this bridge, little bridge, and she, her, her Jeep died there. And while she was trying to get it started, she could hear a little sound of a baby crying. She got out of her Jeep and went underneath that bridge, and there was this woman laying naked. She had taken off every stitch of clothing that she had after she gave birth to that child, and she wrapped that child in it. That missionary took that child and took it home and raised it. The child would want to know what's happened to its mother, and the missionary told him, said, when you're 10 years old, he said, I'll t she said, I'll tell you what happened to your mother. Sure enough, the 10th year came in, and, and uh, the child came to the missionary and said, I want to know about my mom and how she died. And so the missionary took, her, took him to that bridge. And there she told him the story of how she found him wrapped in the clothing of his mom. She watched the child tremble. And as she was watching him, the child began to take off his coat. He took off his coat and he just laid it aside. Tears started coming down his eyes. And he looked up and he said, Mom, is this how you felt? when you gave your life for me. He took off his shirt. He took off his pants until he stood there just in his little shorts, all the while trembling from the cold, weeping with tears down his eyes, crying out to heaven constantly, Mom, Mom, is this how you felt when you died for me? It would help you to spend a little time in your prayer life instead of asking for a lot of things and just thinking 
about what Jesus went through when he died for you. You know what? It'll stop the complaining in the church. It stopped the little quibbling over petty little issues that come up and pop up from time to time over the church world overall. It'll get us off of our backsides and off the couch and out there winning somebody, Jesus, spreading the gospel. It'll bring us into the work of God and it would pour out a revival if our people were broken and contrite over the life that God's Son paid when he sent him into this world to die for us. Verse of invitation. Verse of invitation. Somebody asked me one time, he was a full-blooded Indian. I was witnessing to him at the shoe factory up in Fredericktown. He asked me a question. He said, what did God ever do for me? Oh. <laughs> I said, I'm so glad you asked that. Have you ever heard of a place called Calvary? And I got to tell him the story. Now, I don't know that he ever got saved. He didn't that day. But I got to share the good news. Look here. The devil tried to intimidate you and make you ashamed. I am not going to be ashamed of one who died for me. No greater love hath anybody for you than what Jesus had. Let's stand. Let's stand. Thank you.